Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. I'm a really slow reader. It takes me forever to get through books. Um, I'm reading a, a book right now by Jonathan Edwards um, called The Religious Affections, and I'm literally reading two pages a day. That's how slow I have to go in order to understand it. He's just a very dense, very difficult um, person to understand, so it takes me forever to get through books. Because I have to, I can't go past a paragraph if I don't understand and give myself time to absorb it. I'm like obsessive in that way. And one of the other books that I'm going through slowly um, that is really worth the time is called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. It's an old devotional, I think it was written in the 1600s, and it's kind of famous in some circles. The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Of man, and it talks about what happens when God Himself begins to dwell in the soul of a human being. What does it look like for a human being to suddenly be overcome by the Spirit of God? It's the greatest benefit that we have as followers of Jesus. It's what differentiates the real thing from pretend Christianity. Pretend Christianity, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you go through the motions without the power of God. Real faith means that God himself is dwelling in us, and all sorts of wild things begin to happen when the life of God begins to dwell in the spirit of man. Some people um, call it the mystical union. It's our living, permanent connection with God's presence. That's what happens when we put our faith in Christ. It's the best thing that, that happens to us. And in the Old Testament, God didn't dwell in people, but he would sometimes overcome people, and sometimes he would pour himself out through the Spirit in unique ways. And wild things happened when people, uh, when the Spirit of God came on people in the Old Testament. Samson uh, tore a lion apart limb by limb. That's not a normal thing for a human being to do. But when the Spirit of God came over him, he was able to do some wild things. He knocked down a building with his bare hands. He was just amazing. Feats of strength because the Spirit of God came on him. In the New Testament, it says, The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is at work in us, too. And yet we yawn at this power. We have... The spiritual equivalency of the most powerful force in the universe, a nuclear blast going off in our souls all the time permanently, and we yawn at it, and we doubt God's presence and power in our lives. And one of the ways that um, he is evident in our lives today is through the fruit of the Spirit. So when God comes and dwells in the life of a human being, no matter how grumpy that person 
is, no matter how um, much that person lacks peace in their life or how little joy they have, one of the ways that God expresses his power in and through us as believers today is the fruit of the Spirit. It breaks through the crust of our lives and our personalities. And we get to experience things like joy and peace and patience. We experience and project the life of God through us when he comes and lives in us. It's one of the beautiful things. You know, religion tells you you have to act joyful. And God says in the real thing, you become joyful. Religion says you have to act like you have peace or you have to do certain things to manufacture it. And the real thing, God says, I actually make you a person who is at peace and at rest and exudes that. That comes out of your pores. Now, there's ways that we can block this as well. There's ways that we can block the life of God coming through us to others. There's a ways that we can block ourselves from experiencing God's life inside of us. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, that I, don't, I just don't have joy. I'm not a joyful person. You should be curious about that because that's one of the ways that God expresses his life through a follower of Jesus. And if you're not experiencing that joy, it's not his fault. There's something in us that is blocking us from receiving and experiencing that joy if the Spirit of God really lives in us. If you're not becoming more patient with people, more kind with people, you look at your life and you're like, man, I'm just as mean as I was five years ago. You should be curious about that and begin to wonder what might I be doing to block God's life from working in me so that I actually become a nicer person, which is a fruit of the Spirit. You actually become kind as a Christian. Imagine that. Last week we talked about um, Martha and Mary, and if you want to turn there again, we're going to just look at this passage again. It's, it's Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And while you're turning there, we're doing this, this is a, just a series on what autumn teaches us about a life of following Jesus. What the seasons might teach us about this path of discipleship that we're on. And what we're learning in autumn from autumn is that it's a time where we can just let things die. We can let things fall like tree, like leaves coming off a tree in order to tend to the inner life that we have with Christ, that inner union, the most important part of our life, union with Christ. So we're using this passage as an example to show us, to teach us some things around that general lesson. So I'm going to read it again. It's Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now we can, we can look at Martha here and begin to get curious about the fact that we don't see the fruit of the Spirit in her. Now, she, wasn't, she didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in her yet, but being in the presence of Jesus probably had a similar effect. 
if you were paying attention. She wasn't joyful. She wasn't peaceful. She was anxious. She wasn't experiencing love for her sister Mary or Jesus or others. So we should be curious, what is it about Martha that was preventing her from experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of being with Jesus? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. And we talked last week about these words, anxious and troubled. Anxious, the, the word used for that means it's internal stuff. It's, it's what's happening inside of you. You're anxious inside. You're chaotic inside. And troubled is the external stuff. It's what's happening outside. Because of your anxiousness or your stress inside, it's spilling over into other people's lives. That's what Jesus was saying to Martha. You're spilling over into people. What was it that was causing her to not experience the fruit of the Spirit? Those are Je- that's Jesus' clue to us today. And I think the challenge that we're seeing in this passage and what I want us to hear in this message, it's in your notes, the challenge is to let go of things that block our experience of God's love in us and through us to others. So if you're sitting here and you haven't experienced the fruit of the Spirit, or there's, there's parts of God's character that you haven't experienced or that you aren't experiencing, you're not, you don't sense His love in you and through you, you're not experiencing His love, you should be curious about it and find those things that are blocking your experience of His love and drop those things. And so here's, I just put three things in your notes that's going to help us think this through a little bit. Something to let go of and something to embrace in each of these three things. One, let go of a a distracted heart and embrace full attention living. Love requires your full, undivided attention. You cannot love other people with a distracted heart. You cannot love other people with a hurried heart. And the foundation of Christian love is face-to-face conversation with another human being in which you are fully present. That's hard, and that will require God's help. That's miraculous, actually, in this day and age. I want to read a a quote from Anna Quindlin. And... um, I hope it stirs our hearts a little bit because this is one of the areas that when you're distracted and you're thinking about other things and you're trying to engage with the person in front of you, um, you end up having a lot of regrets, especially when they're people that are really close to you, really close to you. Later in life, you don't feel the pain in the moment, but later in life, you look back and you kind of, I've had this before where I wish I would have just paid attention. I wish I would have been with that person in that moment instead of thinking about other things. Listen to this quote from Anna Quindlin. She wrote that the biggest mistake she made as a parent is the one most parents make. And think of this in terms of, yes, your kids, if you have kids, or your spouse, or just any human being that you happen to be talking with. I did not live in the moment enough. This is particularly clear now that the moment is gone, captured only in photographs. 
There's one picture of the three of them sitting in the grass on a quilt in the shadow of the swing set on a summer day, ages six, four, and one. And I wish I could remember what we ate and what we talked about and how they sounded and how they looked when they slept that night. I wish I had not been in such a hurry to get on to the next thing. Dinner, bath, book, bed. I wish I had treasured the doing a little bit more and the getting it done a little less. You know, many of you in this room are going to be in these hospitality nights that Pastor Al is leading us into. And one of the things that I would encourage you to consider as you are um, beginning to experience uh, that type of community with other people in smaller groups here at Southside, I would encourage you to not engage with your phones. This is a very practical thing, and um, it almost feels too practical, but I think it's important. I would encourage you to actually, if you could, even leave your phones in the car. And when you're with these people, give them your attention. It's one of the most powerful ways that we can love another person is to give them our full, undivided attention. And it's a muscle that desperately needs to be exercised in our culture. It's going up to somebody with the mentality of what Susan Scott, another author, says, with the mentality of, I'm here, and I'm prepared to be nowhere else. I'm prepared to be with you. Someone else said that it's, it's better to be unavailable than to be distracted. That's crazy. But I think they're right. It's better to be unavailable than to be distracted. And I think one of the ways that I, I really appreciate this church is that after, when we do meet and greet after service and we're talking to people, I'll often be talking with someone for an extended amount of time. And in a lot of churches, in a, well, I, just in a lot of places, in a lot of other places in life, when you're talking with someone and you're focused on them, you get pulled away. Like, I've literally physically been pulled away from conversations before, and I'm like, dude, this is another human being too. We'll talk in a minute. Just like, it's crazy, but you guys don't do that. That's what I really, really appreciate about. I don't know why you don't, but you don't do that. Like, people here are so polite and gracious. When someone's talking with someone, I don't, there's not a lot of interruptions, which is really, really sweet. But what if our church, during meet and greet, after service, what if that was one of the first things that people noticed? That we give other human beings our full attention. We don't just cluster in groups that we're comfortable with. We don't just, you know, bounce around, you know, shaking people's hands enthusiastically. We settle in with different people and have long, extended conversations. We're not in a hurry to leave the conversation. What if that's one of the ways that we were countercultural? Um, our Kara and I have a spiritual director. We've talked about him before, and we we zoom in with him um, once a month. She has an appointment with him, and I have a separate appointment with him for an hour. And it's just on it's on Zoom. And one of the first things that Kara said, and that I said after that first uh, meeting with him, even over Zoom, was it was absolutely compelling how much he paid attention to us. Like that's a foreign 
thing. To have someone give you their full, undivided attention, even looking at you through a screen, is compelling. Someone said the, the experience of being understood versus, uh, versus interpreted is so compelling you could charge admission for it. To actually be in the presence of someone who is looking at you, asking follow-up questions that makes it sound like they're actually paying attention to you is compelling. And again, this is a way that we can be countercultural as a church. To treat people as though they are at least just as interesting as what's on your phone. The second thing, let go of over the top and embrace good enough. Now, we live in kind of an over the top world. Um, when I was in high school, the way that you asked somebody to homecoming was you'd be walking through the hall and say, you want to go to homecoming? And they'd be like, yeah. You'd be like, all right, well, we'll figure, out, we'll figure out somewhere to eat. Like, people spend more energy, money, time, creativity thinking about how they're going to ask someone to homecoming than I did to ask Kara to marry me. Like, it's insane. Everything has to be this over-the-top production. Like, Kara and I, we, we, we just went to this place, this church in Cleveland, where we sat on the steps and had a ton of conversations, and we were driving there, and I was going to ask her to marry me. And, and I actually remember in the car, like, looking at her, like, for some reason, I'm really nervous. You're going to say yeah, right? She's like, oh, yeah, probably. Come on, just, you're fine. I'm like, I'm really nervous. I, I think you're going to say no. Like, it was, that's how much time and energy I put into this thing. It wasn't a big production. We went and sat on the steps, and I asked her. You know what she said? Yep. That's how she said yes. I mean, I had this whole thing, so I'm like, see? We're good. But we had spent, we had done the hard work of developing the soul and the heart and the friendship of the relationship, and that's what mattered. The relationship is what mattered. We live in an over-the-top world, this is uh, John Calvin in his commentary on this passage, and, and some of you um, cringe when I say that name, and it's probably because you've heard other people say things that John Calvin said that he never said. That happens all the time. Most people that don't like that guy or think of Calvinism, which is a really weird, not even a true way of talking about what he believed, um, most people, when they hear that name, they... They've never even read him, so don't cringe when I say that. He actually was a pretty good theologian in a lot of ways, and he didn't make up a lot of the things that he's uh, attributed with saying. Here's what he said about this passage. Martha carried her activity beyond proper bounds. Christ would rather have chosen to be entertained in a frugal manner and at moderate expense than that the the holy woman should have submitted to so much toil. You ever considered that the reason Martha was so stressed out is because it was Jesus and she thought he would need like lobster and steak, but he would have been totally fine with macaroni and cheese? I mean, we know that Jesus loved eating. We talked about this last time, but based on the people he ate with and based on where he ate, he was probably fine with it not being a very fancy meal. She overdid it and drove herself crazy because the pressure she put on herself. She valued perfection over connection. And what if you scaled back your perfectionism 
to the point that it allowed you to live at a relational pace of life, to the point where you weren't inducing your own sense of franticness because it has to be over the top. There's a few things that should be over the top. Christmas decorations, I was saying before service, in this building needs to be a little bit over the top. So some people are going to suffer and take one for the team. But other things like that, that most things don't matter. Like Christmas decorations are important, but other things usually don't matter. Uh, when I was a youth pastor in Wadsworth, we had um, a lot of kids from Highland were in our student ministry. And one time they were telling me this story because we were looking for places to host, you know, different small groups. And we were looking for homes. And they talked about this home. Like, there's, a, there's, some, there's some money in Highland. There's some really beautiful homes. And this one home was like, like a mansion. Like, incredible. The stuff they had inside this home. Like a, an indoor pool. They had maybe even like a couple lanes of bowling out. I mean, it was insane. And none of them really liked going over there. They wanted to go to this other, it was a um, middle to lower class family in Highland. This small house, they had a ton of cats. But every time these kids would go over there, they'd get out these Afghans, these old blankets, they'd lay on the floor and watch movies. They'd be like, we're going we're gonna to do it upright tonight, we're microwave popcorn. And they would feed them this stale microwave popcorn, and the kids loved it. Because they didn't have to act, they didn't have to pretend and they knew those people cared about them. One of the questions we can ask ourselves is, where in my life am I trying to do things over the top when good enough is probably good enough? Because the problem with over the top is it robs you of margin in your life. And margin is the place where we love people. If you don't have any margin in your life, and someone comes up to you in need, you've got nothing to give them. The last thing is, let go of hyper-productivity and embrace the deeper productivity of time spent with God. Our mentor <clears throat> tells a story about death by one more thing, that one of the, uh, it used to be one of the leading causes of scuba diving um, fatalities, is that the person would be looking at the coral reef or they'd be following a, a fish and they would see another one and they'd be running low in, on oxygen in their tank. But they would just see one more shell they want to go check out. And then they would begin to ascend to the surface. And just a few inches below, beneath the surface, they would black out. Used to be one of the leading causes of Death, shallow water drowning, because they had to do one more thing. This is where Martha does seem to make a value judgment on Mary. Um, and it's where kind of the traditional understanding of this passage is actually helpful, because Martha does seem to talk in, in, talk in a way that says... That communicates that what Mary's doing is not as productive as what Martha's doing. Like the way that she presents herself in this situation, the way that she talks to Jesus about this is just sitting there with you is not as productive as what I'm doing to prepare food for you. She's wasting time. And I could use the help. 
And what I think we can take away from that understanding is that no time spent with God is wasted. When you spend time with the Lord, it infuses every other aspect of your life, every other moment of your life with meaning and fruitfulness and fulfillment because we were created to live in partnership and in union with God. This last week I was feeling very spiritually lethargic and I noticed that, and Kara was struggling with some things too, and it just hit me, it's like I haven't had just extended times with the Lord in prayer in the last few days. And I told, I apologized to Kara, I said, I haven't been praying, I haven't been praying for you, and I think you're feeling it because there's this thing called intercessory prayer that is like absolutely magical, that when you pray for someone, God acts in their life in ways that you ask him to. It's insane, and we yawn at that. It's, it's the most amazing privilege we have as Christians. And so I corrected it, and I have a way of making sure that I prioritize extended time with the Lord. And so I corrected it, and all of a sudden I started to feel alive again. The weird stuff started to fade away, the stress, the the sense of I need to hurry for no reason. I don't even know why I need to hurry. That started to dissolve and go away. And I began to actually enjoy life again and Feel a sense of spiritual momentum again. This is uh, the point of Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, that when we are intentionally more spiritually minded and dependent upon God, it affects us physically even. When we are more spiritually minded, it says it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It makes you alive in new ways. And you know what? Most of the time, like when I'm feeling stressed or a lack of motivation, um, I usually think there's some exotic reason why I, I just need, there's something crazy that's not happening that I need to do. I need to do something wild. It's something exotic. And you know what it is typically? I'm not spending enough time with the Lord. I'm not praying enough. I'm not thinking about God enough in Scripture. It usually is pretty simple. And we're pretty gentle around here. And we say things like, don't be heroic in your quiet time, in your personal time with the Lord. And we also live with the tension that, but spend time with the Lord. Because if there was like, if we were all like dying of thirst in here and there was a, a mountain river, I don't know why it'd be a mountain river with no mountains, but let's just say it, was, it sounds good. There's a mountain river over there, just a stream of fresh mountain water somehow miraculously over there. And we're dying of thirst in here. Wouldn't it be crazy for me not to say, go spend time at the river. Jump in the river, drink water from the river. That's kind of what it is with, When it comes to spiritual matters and spending time with the Lord, I don't know how to implore you more if you don't. But no time with God is wasted. It's the most productive thing you could do with your life. It makes everything else better. It aligns you with the heart of God. It makes you more useful in this world and in the kingdom. And it gives you more peace and a sense of momentum. 
This is the God who says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. Do we believe it? And a lot of us have been hurt by religiosity. A lot of us in this room, I've had several conversations with a lot of families about this. Religiosity is heinous. It comes literally straight from the pit of hell. It's one of Satan's, God's enemy's most productive strategy. You know what religion is? Religion is someone ushering you through the motions of spending time with God without the power of God. It's forcing you to do things that you're supposed to do as a Christian. You're supposed to spend time with God. It's forcing you to do that, but void of all of God's presence and power in that activity. And it will destroy you. Do you know how hard it is to overcome reading the Bible if you were forced to with a spirit of religiosity where someone says, you're going to do this and they don't care if you don't experience God's presence in that moment or his power through that. You're going to do it because you're supposed to and you never want to go back to it again. Like for me, I mean, it's an incredibly productive strategy by Satan. For me, it was uh, singing And to my mom and dad's credit, they never made me sing, but I would go in church or I'd go to a youth group thing and they'd be singing and I'd just be like, this is so weird. Why are are people singing? This is awkward. And if I would have been made to do that, I would have had this, this gross allergic reaction to singing today. But what happened is, I wasn't made to, and I began to experience later in my college life that when you sing things about God or when you listen to worship music, it awakens something in my heart that nothing else does. It raises the temperature of my affection for God in ways that nothing else does. When you put melody with truth, it does something to you. It was made to. But to sing devoid of God's power, to just go through the motions of it, would have destroyed me in that way. Maybe for you it's reading the Bible. Maybe you were forced to read so much of Scripture through and you didn't experience the presence and the power of God in that. That's a religious activity. You went through the motions of it enough to make you hate it because you didn't meet God in it. It's a great strategy, isn't it? To say... That didn't work. I tried it. Not going back to it. And Satan says, bingo. Perfect. That's why we don't make people do stuff like that. To read Scripture in a way that the presence of God is there empowering it is to meet Him in a way that opens your eyes to the wonder of who He is and what He's done and how He's available to you and how He's made Himself available to you. Man, without that... To just read it, to check it off, and you're missing it. And you won't want to dip back into it. Or maybe it's prayer. You were forced to pray. And you didn't experience the, the comfort that comes from casting your anxieties on God. He wasn't near you. It felt like he was hitting the ceiling. Spirit of religiosity. And now I'm not going back to that. And boom, Satan says again, good. 
Because that's where we meet God in prayer. That's where pain meets a savior and a king who's able to do something about it. That's where we give him all the stuff of our life that we can't carry in an unrushed relational way. And when you do that regularly, he does meet you. But if you were forced to do it with a spirit of religiosity, you have an aversion to it and it's hard to get back there. Maybe what God is inviting us into through this series is a life of taking him seriously. I mean, actually believing that he's real. Actually believing that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. Because if we don't reimagine our life around that, if we don't change things in our life around that, we're just playing. We're pretending church. I mean, but if he is who he says he is, he's worth spending time with and he's worth pursuing. Maybe it's letting go of all the things that get in the way of our time with him, whether that be distracted heart and over-the-top misplaced priority or a distorted assessment of what actually makes something productive. That's all. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to have Pastor Al come up here and lead us in communion, so would you pray with me? Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.